Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Ellen Roseman. Ellen is a journalist who sticks up for ordinary Canadians. She's been advocating for consumer rights for the past 35 years. When you hear about consumer issues in Canada, you can't avoid finding references to Ellen Roseman. She's become a brand name for activism and a champion at helping consumers fight back against injustices. People praise her direct, down-to-earth, and common-sense writing style. Ellen's personal finance and consumer columns regularly appear in the Toronto Star. She's also the host of the Money Saver podcast, a podcast that teaches you how to make smart choices at every stage of your life, safeguard your interests, and protect yourself from poor advice. In my interview with Ellen, we discuss how to avoid costly mistakes with the RRSP home buyer's plan, collateral mortgages, and how to protect yourself when signing a buyer representation agreement with a realtor. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ellen Roseman. Hi, Ellen. How are you doing today? Hi, Sean. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well as well. Really looking forward to chatting with you today about a number of issues, including real estate mortgages, as well as consumer issues. Yeah, I also want to mention that I was one of your early readers of Burn Your Mortgage and really enjoyed working with you on the book. Your feedback was invaluable and definitely helped make my book that much stronger. So really appreciate it. Thank you again. Okay, let's go. Great. So you wrote a column on a mistake that cost a first-time home bar $5,000. Can you tell us about that story and offer any tips for avoiding a situation like this? Well, this was someone who was rushing to buy the house and uh, put the mortgage together. And she was a first time home buyer and she took money out of her RSP, but it didn't occur to her to tell the bank that she was doing it under the RSP home buyer's plan. Whoops. Which is a specific way of getting your more money out of your RSP without paying interest or taxes for a, about a 15 year period as long as you pay it back on a regular schedule. So it counted as a regular RSP withdrawal, which is taxable. And that's where the penalty came in. And then later, she said to the banks, I think there were two banks involved, can you backdate it? But this was like two years earlier. So one of the banks said, absolutely not. The other bank said, well, maybe we'll look at it. Turned out that there were no specific rules, but the banks were worried because such an amount of time had gone by and it just put her in a difficult position. So these days, it's so important to make sure that you're telling your bank what's going on because getting the money out of the RSP without saying that it's under the home buyer's plan can cost you quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. And it's great for people to read that story because taking money out as a first time home bar, this might be something that you do only once in your life. I mean, you can requalify as a first time home bar again, but certainly, you know, this isn't something you're doing every year, like your taxes or anything like that. But definitely, I would say speak to your financial institution, make sure that you're clear about taking it out under the 
home buyer's plan and, and make sure that you fill in the appropriate forms because, yeah, as you said, that was a pretty costly mistake to make just withdrawing the money without actually filling in the correct forms. Right. And, you know, certainly make sure you follow the rules of the home buyer's plan and pay the back money back in installments if you don't want to be taxed on that because, yeah, there's certainly rules that need to be followed. So the onus is kind of on you to understand that yourself. Yeah. At the end, I quoted her saying, this is my money. Is it fair that the government should be pocketing money that isn't theirs? And I say in an editorial judgment here, the government always has its hands in your RSP. You know, you can't look at the amount in your RSP and say, that's all my money. The government will get its fair share of taxes, either when you withdraw it or later when you die or your spouse dies. I mean, that money is never entirely yours. Yeah, that's true. The tax man always gets paid at the end of the day. So great. So another topic that you've covered is collateral mortgages in your columns over the years. Collateral mortgages can be a good thing. For example, if you're planning to take out a home equity line of credit, but they can also trap you. How can home buyers and homeowners protect themselves when it comes to collateral mortgages? First of all, they should ask right up front, what kind of mortgages do you offer? A few financial institutions in Canada, some of the bigger ones, only have collateral mortgages. And the way it works is that, say your house is $400,000 and you're getting a mortgage, say, for $350,000. That will be a certain part of the amount. It will be under the total value of the house. And then if you need more money and you want to, you can refinance, which means kind of getting rid of that mortgage and taking out a new bigger mortgage. But refinancing does involve some fees. You have to get a legal appraisal usually and legal fees, and it can be cumbersome. So some of the banks are thinking, well, why make it so hard for people to refinance and use their home to get more money for either home repairs or maybe something else altogether to just get money out of their home? So with the collateral mortgage, your $400,000 house, they might put down $500,000 on the loan. It's like a line of credit uh, and there's a lien on your house and you are only paying interest on the amount that you've borrowed. But this gives them excess capacity in, un, against which they can get you to borrow. So they're saying it's for your convenience. But the problem is that it's not as if you can just say, well, first of all, you may not know. And a lot of people said they didn't know the loan on their house was worth more. It was like 100, they can go, usually go up to 125% of the value of the house. You should be informed of this. You should be told right up front. But people don't always know that they are getting a collateral mortgage and that it's going to be for more than the value of the house. And here's where the problem can come in. I did a story about it a couple of years ago. Seems that even though you are approved for a, a higher amount to borrow, you still have to qualify. And that means you have to meet the bank's test for being able to borrow this amount. So I had a couple who took out a $612,000 mortgage in line of credit with a bank, and the collateral charge against their property was $946,000. Meanwhile, the husband couldn't work anymore because he had health issues, and they wanted to borrow $50,000 more, and they didn't qualify anymore because he didn't have an income, or he just had short-term disability income, which wasn't enough. So the bank said that this was a convenience for them, but it wasn't a convenience. They couldn't get it from the bank that they were with. Moreover, they couldn't move their mortgage anywhere else because the house was insured for more than its current value. So no other lender would want to take it. 
And luckily, I went back to that bank and argued that it wasn't fair. They didn't understand. Here he was in a very desperate financial situation, needed more money. And the bank agreed to discharge the lien against the house. He could move it after all. No, that's great to hear. And as you mentioned, certainly collateral mortgages can be good in, in a sense, like you're planning to take out a home equity line of credit later on. But the fact of the matter is it's important to know whether you're signing up for a mortgage with a standard charge or a collateral charge. And yeah, further to your point, I mean, I'm not sure the lenders are doing the best jobs of disclosing that. I had a client where he was with a certain lender and he had a collateral mortgage and he just wasn't aware of that. So certainly when you're signing up for a mortgage, it's important to ask whether it has a collateral charge or a standard charge, because if you're planning to switch lenders or look at your different options when your mortgage comes up for renewal, which I certainly encourage you to do, having a mortgage with a collateral charge limits your options. Now there are lenders that allow you to do what's called a collateral transfer, which means that you can transfer over your mortgage and they may cover the legal costs as well as the appraisal costs, but you don't typically have as many options when you do have a collateral mortgage. So some food for thoughts. And if you're not planning to ever take out a home equity line of credit and your mortgage has a collateral charge, then all it's really going to do for you is limit your ability to move your mortgage later on. And you're more than likely going to have to pay a higher interest rate just because there are fewer lenders that accept mortgages with collateral charges. So definitely ask that question up front because the unfortunate reality situation is, as you mentioned in your column there, people usually find out that they have a collateral charge mortgage later on when they go to try to switch lenders. So it's so important to ask that question up front so you're not blindsided by it later on when you're doing the right thing and trying to see if there's a better option out there when your mortgage comes up for renewal. I just want to say that under the federal government uh, headed by Stephen Harper, the finance minister, Joe Oliver, brought in voluntary rules for disclosure of collateral mortgages, recognizing that there was a problem when banks were switching and, and customers didn't understand this new system. And I found that a lot of banks were not disclosing it. I went to their websites. I didn't see any information. Some of the banks that only offered collateral mortgages didn't say that anywhere. They didn't notify the customer. And in that article that I just looked up that I wrote a few years ago, CBC went undercover to two different branches of one of the big five banks, and they tried to see how well the mortgage specialist explained the fine print and mentioned these collateral mortgages. And they, at one of them, the journalist asked the specialist if there was any difference between a mortgage which includes a collateral charge and one offered at other banks, and the specialist failed to mention anything about collateral charges. We should all ask, but if we find that the banks aren't telling us or if it's impossible to get that information, we should complain to the federal government or the financial consumer agency because this is important information that legally they should be trying to give us. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes when it comes to financial matters, you really need to look out for yourself because the government can't be in these meetings listening to everything. These may be the rules, but whether they're being followed or not is another question. So yeah, you really need to ask the right questions and look out for yourself when it comes to stuff like that. Right. Great. So moving on, you wrote a column on mortgage disability insurance where a reader was paying it for five years without knowing it. Can you tell us about these stories and what lessons are there to be learned from it? This one kind of follows up on the other one because she, again, was not asking the right questions. 
She'd had this mortgage for a long, long time. It was with a credit union, didn't really remember what she signed and didn't seem to have the papers readily at hand. And she, like this other fellow, became disabled, couldn't work anymore. And she started getting a disability pension and she was going to sell her house because she couldn't keep up the mortgage payments. And then she went to a real estate agent to sell her house. And the real estate agent looked at the paperwork, which this customer hadn't done. And she said, you already have disability insurance on your mortgage. It's like part of the mortgage that you took out originally. And this woman that I called Dorothy Jean, I think that was her first couple of names. She said she'd been going into the bank for five years. And every time she went in, not a single person said, Dorothy, do you have insurance with us? Nobody asked or tried to help her. You know, in her case, it was very good that she had the disability insurance, but nobody even checked her records to see if she had it or not. So if she hadn't tried to sell the house, she might not have even been able to, you know, take advantage of this. And as it happened, because I found out and I notified the lender, which was owned by one of the big Quebec companies, they paid back the entire amount of the disability insurance because she didn't even know that she was getting it. That's uh, great to hear. And so how can somebody avoid a situation like that? Would you say asking the right questions up front and making sure you read through all the paperwork and understand whatever you're saying? Do you have any other advice? Certainly try and keep the paperwork handily accessible. Don't put it into a drawer that then gets covered up with all kinds of other paperwork. If you feel that the mortgage obligation is too high, it doesn't hurt to contact your financial institution. Tell them that you're having some tough times right now. Your income has fallen. Is there a way that they could help you with the mortgage? Maybe they can refinance it in some way. And then ask about things like, you know, do I have disability insurance that I maybe forgot that I had? Just make sure that you know what you have. I guess you can't really rely on the bank's personnel to know because they're not always checking their records either. And who knows how easily accessible that information is to the bank. But you're the person who has a mortgage, so you should know what's going on with your own mortgage. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I purchased my house and had a mortgage, I kept all that paperwork handy. And certain lenders offer extra things like mortgage life and disability insurance, as well as they might offer you some sort of insurance on the appliances in your house. Some lenders offer that a year for free. And if you, I guess, just sign up for your mortgage and you don't read through all of it, you might not even know that you have this coverage. So it's so important to spend the time to read it. And Maybe as part of your yearly checklist, like as part of doing your taxes, just review some of this paperwork and just refresh your memory because it's so easy to forget about coverage that you currently have and you, you certainly wouldn't want to pay for it again if you're already protected. Yeah, I see that she received a refund of $23,729 for the, those insurance payments over the past five years, wow. which is really good. Oh, that's great. That's certainly not a small amount of money. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm sure that made a big difference for her. And as I said in that article, don't trust the financial institution to put your interests first. Under the law, they're not a fiduciary, which means that they don't have to put your interests first. And you have to expect that they will provide a duty of care, but not necessarily to make sure that they're doing their utmost for you as opposed to making sure that they come out okay too. So we always have to put ourselves first and make sure that we're doing the best we can to protect ourselves. Oh, great advice. Thanks for sharing that. In your book, Fight Back, you offer some helpful mortgage suggestions. Can you share some of your best tips with our listeners? I actually read a, something here that 
I'd forgotten that I'd written about this book, Six Years Old. And it was a great story where someone separated from her husband and she talked to her mortgage lender and was told there would be no penalty if she took out another mortgage within four months. So she bought the condominium, took out the mortgage with the same institution, and there was a $7,300 penalty because she was breaking the mortgage. But they told her that because she'd taken out a new mortgage, it would be reimbursed to her when the deal was closed. But then she found that she wouldn't get a refund after all, since she had taken out a variable rate mortgage. And to get reimbursed, she had to get a fixed rate mortgage, which is what she had before. And the fixed rate was 4.5% at the time, and the variable rate was 2.25%. So she argued that she wasn't properly informed. And I got in touch with the ING Direct chief executive at that point. It's now Tangerine, and it's owned by Scotiabank. But it was then Peter Aceto, who was, unlike most bank executives, on Twitter had his own ability to respond to people on Twitter. He was quite public about getting his email address out there. So I got in touch with him and I said, why don't you check the communication? Because they're an online bank, they record all the phone calls. So he listened to the recording and he said, I agree the communication wasn't up to par. And he said the message wasn't made clear to her or her mortgage broker and refunded her the $7,300 penalty. So that was great. But then I started talking about the fact that mortgages are written in legalese. If you ever, you know, I mean, Sean, you took the course, you read them, but the average person can't read them or can't understand them. There's so much in there. And when the bank comes back to you and says, well, it was in the fine print, you should have read the fine print. I was arguing, and I think it's true, that if something is a long legal document with a lot of fine print, they can't just say you should read the fine print. It's up to them to bring important clauses to your attention. So that means highlighting the key clauses by circling them, using large print, bold type. They should contact you before you sign the mortgage to explain these key clauses that might affect you. And another really good practice is to bring the important clauses to your attention and have you initial them at the time. So that shows that you were explained what the key clauses were at the time you signed. And that might be better at helping you remember them. And also that they should encourage you to seek outside help before you sign a mortgage because there's no cooling off period afterward if you change your mind. So these are things that other companies are doing, like with the scholarship plans, the group scholarship plans, you know, for the RESP, there are problems with trying to get your money out early. So they make sure that you initial the key clauses. And why are banks just assuming that you're going to be a mortgage expert because you're taking out a mortgage? They should be trying a little harder to make sure that you understand things. And these penalties, luckily, because interest rates kind of leveled off and then they went up a bit, the penalties for getting out of a mortgage before your term is up aren't as high. I'm not getting nearly the complaints. For a while there, I was getting like one or two a day. And the mortgage penalties aren't explained. The calculations aren't explained. If there's something in the mortgage, it often just said a penalty may apply, but it's not at all specific as to what kind of penalty will apply. People didn't understand that if a bank quotes you a penalty, when you say, I'm thinking of breaking my mortgage, the penalty they quote today might be totally different two or three months later when you finally do break the mortgage and the the house deal closes. So there's a lot to know about mortgage penalties and banks haven't done a great job of explaining them. And if you are in a position where you have to break a mortgage and your rate is higher, you should always try and find out exactly how they calculate the rate. The big problem for many people was that, you know, the banks have a posted rate and then they have the rate that you get, which is usually a negotiated rate, which is a discount from the posted rate. But for the purposes of calculating the mortgage penalty, they always use the posted rate, which you don't pay. 
to make the gap higher between the rate that you got the mortgage at and the rate that it is at today. No, great advice. And certainly I can attest to that. I mean, just finding out whether your mortgage has a standard or collateral charge, it, it's not just written in simple terms like that. There's kind of mortgage language that says whether it's standard or collateral. And it's not easy for the average consumer to understand that. So certainly if you're signing up for a mortgage, uh, definitely ask to be pointed to the actual verbiage where it says specific stuff like that. And I definitely think that if you're signing up for a mortgage where it has perhaps like a higher penalty than a normal mortgage, that section of, of the mortgage contract should be highlighted and you should initial there just so that you are aware of that. Because certainly, you know, when people are initially looking for a mortgage, they care about the mortgage rates, the prepayments, stuff of that nature. But mortgage penalties are, are something that usually people don't think about till later on when they're faced with a situation where they have to break their mortgage. And then when they find out what their penalty is, they may be a bit surprised. So it's certainly important to ask those questions up front so that you're not blindsided by them later on and, and not forced to pay a big penalty. Because certainly the penalties may not be high right now, but who's to say um, that interest rates will stay at their current level? We really don't know what they'll be at in the future. So yes. just you know, important to understand how your penalty works so that you uh, don't potentially have to face a high mortgage penalty later on. Yeah. There's a problem, I think, with credit in general. When we take out a loan, when we take out a credit card, a mortgage, we're optimistic about the future and we're thinking that in the future, we're going to have more than enough money to pay back our obligations. But what we should do is Take away that optimism and look on the dark side and be more pessimistic and say, what is the problem if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if we don't have two incomes? We only have one income. What if I have to sell the house because I have to move somewhere else? And think of all these reasons why your five-year mortgage might be something that you'll have to get out of after two and a half years, which is a difficult time. See, People seem to change their mind. And that can cost you a lot of money. And then maybe say, how about a three-year mortgage instead of a five-year mortgage, just to lessen the possibility that I'll have to break the mortgage early. And then always say, if I do have to get out early, what's it going to cost me under different scenarios? Because it also depends on what, where the level of interest rate is at the time you want to get out. We're talking about mortgage brokers. I think that banks in general are out there to sell you a product and they're good at selling. But I think the mortgage broker, because you have a contract with them or they're acting for you, they're more on your side and they're more likely to ask the important questions that you need to have asked and to be able to explain them to you in a way you understand. So that get the mortgage broker to go through different scenarios of how the penalty might work and make it clear to you whether the penalty seems too high. And if it does find another lender, such as credit unions, they often have better penalties and not nearly as severe penalties if you want to get out early. No, great advice. And further to that point, I mean, if you go to the bank, they can only offer you whatever products they have available in terms of mortgages. I mean, they're not likely to say, well, Mr. Client or Miss Client, our mortgages aren't really well suited for you. Why don't you go down the street to our competitor? They're just not going to say something like that. But at least with a mortgage broker, they have access to dozens of lenders and they can tell you the pros and the cons of each product and kind of match you with the lender that makes the most sense for you because they're not tied to any specific lender. So certainly you have to look out for yourself and ask the right questions, but at least with a mortgage broker, they're more unbiased than the banks. Yes. Now that you're working as a mortgage broker, do you find there's still a bit of a stigma about them that you only go to mortgage broker if you're a problem client, if you're self-employed or if you have bankruptcy on your file? 
I think that anybody can benefit from using a mortgage broker, especially since you don't, don't usually have to pay a fee in order to avail yourself of their services. It doesn't come out of your pocket. It comes out of the lender's pocket. Yeah, that's a, a great point. I believe people used to have that belief of mortgage brokers that only people with credit issues or self-employed or whatnot go to mortgage brokers. But with the statistics showing that more and more Canadians are going to mortgage brokers with each passing year, I think that reputation is going by the wayside. And yeah, further to your point, if you are a salaried employee and you have a mortgage coming up for renewal, definitely it makes sense to go to a mortgage broker and see what your options are because it's not going to cost you anything. And the mortgage broker has access to dozens of lenders. So if you're busy, like most Canadians, they can save you time and you know see if there's a better option out there. If if there's not, then you can stay put at your current lender. But just doing that due diligence makes sense because for most Canadians, their mortgage is their biggest debt of their lifetime. So I certainly think it makes sense to spend 10, 15 minutes on the phone talking to the broker and just seeing if there's a way you can save money in terms of your mortgage. So thanks for bringing up that great point, Ellen. The last question I had for you is some realtors ask you to sign a buyer agreement like it's no big deal, but buyer agreements can be risky as you've once wrote in a column. How can home buyers and home sellers protect themselves when signing a buyer agreement? I was doing a course at U of T maybe about eight years ago, continuing education about buying a house. And somebody told me about her situation where she signed a buyer representation agreement with a real estate agent. These have been around for about 10 years, I guess. And she knew that that meant that the agent would represent her and would be trying to keep the buyer's interest at heart. Usually they represent the seller. And that if there was confidential information that she shared with her agent, that the agent wouldn't be telling the seller's agent. So all this sounded good, but then she got into an issue where she didn't really feel that her agent was giving her enough information about houses for sale. She found something that she liked and she wanted to buy it. And under the buyer representation agreement, the agent gets the commission, even though the agent wasn't involved because she's committed herself to using that agent for a certain amount of time. And then she discovered that there's a little box on the form that you tick if the buyer representation agreement lasts for longer than six months. And her uh, agent had signed her up for nine months, which is really a long time because she's then forced to pay a commission to that agent during a nine-month period, even if she finds a house on her own or buys it with another agent. So she went back to RICO, the Real Estate Commission of Ontario, and said, this doesn't seem right. And they said, well, you are allowed to extend it, but the client should be told. But she wasn't told, but she couldn't get her money back or anything like that. Then I've heard of other cases where people just find that they can't stand this agent that they've signed up with. And what they're allowed to do, they don't have to stay with the agent. They can go to the head of the brokerage, which is the firm that employs the agent, and say, I'm not getting along with this person. I want someone else to deal with. So they'll assign you another agent or you'll work directly with the broker who's the head of the firm. But still, I think that if you're signing one of these agreements, keep it short, especially if you don't know exactly who you're dealing with and how well they'll perform on your behalf. So you can do it for as little as a week. If you're putting in an offer, you can do it for a month. You can do it only for a specific property if you want. They're quite flexible because it's a contract and you can negotiate the terms. So don't do three months or six months if you don't want to be trapped in something that is going to hinder your ability to get the best deal. Keep it short. And then if you're happy with it, you can always extend it at another time. 
No, great advice. And I certainly understand why realtors want their clients to be signed up for this because I guess, you know, realtors spend time and resources and money helping out their clients. And I guess they just don't want to see their clients using like five different realtors at the same time, just to be fair to the realtor. But I don't think, you know, signing somebody up for like nine months for the buyer representation agreement is really fair. I have your advice about signing up for shorter term, like under three months, just to try out the agent and see if you're a good fit. And if everything's great, you can extend it. But just kind of having that trial period, I think is a good idea rather than being kind of trapped with an agent that might not be a good personal fit for you. I mean, certainly you can go with another agent at the brokerage, but just kind of think having you know, that option of going with another brokerage if things aren't working out is just kind of good to have. So I you know, yeah. certainly encouraged not signing a super long our representation agreement, right. like you said. In another story, somebody wanted to get out early from the buyer representation agreement and the agent told them, okay, I'll let you out early, but it's going to cost you a few thousand dollars. And they wanted him to buy his way out. And he was furious about that. But I guess they have the ability to do that because you are contracted to stay for that long. So these should be looked after. And I heard from a number of people who didn't even know they had signed or what it meant, right? Again, like many contracts, sign here and you sign. And if nobody explains it to you and you find it difficult to read, you might not understand the implications of it. Like I know that some real estate agents want you to sign as a condition of dealing with them. So they should be obligated to explain what it is it means and what it could mean to you if after a few weeks you find that it's just not working out properly. Great advice. And yeah, we'll end the podcast on that note. So Ellen, it's been great having you on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? I am doing a lot of speaking at various clubs about consumer issues, especially for older people. There's a heck of a lot of fraud that goes on and scams and online marketing that is very deceptive. There's door-to-door selling, even though the Ontario government has banned some kinds of door-to-door sales, there's others that's going on. And I find that people over 70 or 75 tend to be somewhat more trusting of businesses and they don't understand how easy it is to fake things like, you know, the call display can be spoofed, the certified check can be counterfeit. There's a lot of very sophisticated schemes out there that people don't necessarily question. I just heard from someone who said his wife was at a local shopping center and there's a cosmetic store there that the people in the store kind of come out and they entice the passers-by and she got lured into the store. And then she ended up buying all kinds of cosmetics at a price of thousands of dollars. And he thinks that she wasn't her proper self when she was signing and it's very difficult to get out of these kinds of contracts. So I'm hoping to do more of that because I hate seeing people getting snared Another thing that really drives many older people crazy are timeshares, right? Because you sign up, you're going to have vacations for life. It doesn't seem expensive, but you can never sell that timeshare. And then you think, okay, well, maybe I can't sell it. I'll go to a company that promises that it can resell it for me. And then they can't resell it either because timeshares aren't worth very much. And there's always new timeshares coming out. So they get deprived of the money that they spend on the timeshare, which they can't use anymore because the timeshare company won't let them out or makes it very expensive to let them out. And then they spend money on a reseller that doesn't work either. So I do a lot of teaching, a lot of speaking, and I'm still writing once a week in the Toronto Star. And I find this all very exciting and rewarding, especially when you can help people get out of a mess. 
Yeah, certainly. I look forward to reading your column every week, and I'm glad there's somebody out there like yourself fighting on behalf of the consumers. Sometimes people find themselves in over their heads, so great to have somebody wonderful like you fighting on, on the behalf of consumers to help get fair treatment from companies like that. So, Ellen, thanks very much again for being on the show. It was great having you. Great to talk with you, Sean, and good luck with the, the mortgage book and burning the mortgage for many other people besides yourself. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at Sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.